Esther. All right, uh, get your Bibles out. We'll be in chapter 1 today. Let me give you a little bit of background before we read uh, chapter 1 of Esther. About a century before this story takes place, the Babylonians, which was the superpower of the day, sacked Jerusalem and took everybody who was of any value as a human being to Babylon. So all the elite, all the educated people, anybody that they could use, any craftsmen, anybody who had any skill, all were taken to Babylon. And so Jerusalem, as a city, ceased to exist. Uh, Judea, as a country, as a kingdom, ceased to exist. And so now, fast forward, 100 years later, now Persians took over Babylon, so they're the new empire, the new superpower, and the Jews are still a scattered minority in the empire. Some of them have returned. They went back to Jerusalem. Most of them have not. They're still living in different cities. Some of them are in capital cities, some Babylon, some in Susa, which is the city from the book of Esther. And they're living as a minority, as an ethnic minority, as a religious minority, at odds with the culture that they're in. The book of Esther describes the time when God's people were threatened with annihilation. And yet God came through and saved them. Because of his covenant love, because of his commitment to his people, he comes and saves them through a seemingly random series of events. As you read Esther, God's name isn't mentioned in the book at all. That's very unusual for the Bible, not to mention God. And yet Esther not even once mentions the name of God. In fact, all religious language is taken out of the book on purpose. It seems that the narrator is trying to show that through the random events, Through the ordinary events, God still works. That though God is behind the scenes, He's still accomplishing His purposes, and He does, in fact, save His people, Israel, in the book of Esther. Okay, so this is Persia, 500 years before Christ was born. Uh, It's it's a story of an empire and and a king and a queen. What does that have to do with us today? Is there any relevance to us today as we look at the book of Esther. Let me give you a couple of things to process as you start reading the book and see how, in fact, relevant it is for us today. We Christians today live as a cultural and religious minority at odds with the world around us, just like Israel, just like Israelites back in Persia. Almost everything that our culture believes is against what we believe. We are scattered in the world, and we don't agree with the world, and yet we're here. So how do you live? How do you live as a Christian in the world that, in general, on most issues, disagrees with what you believe? We too, just like the Jews in Persia, puzzle over the seemingly random things in life. And yet we realize that that there's a significance to our choices. So just like the Jews in Persia, they see these things unfold. There's edicts, there's People are making all these big decisions and God reverses them. In fact, the the whole book of Esther is about reversals. There's lots of irony. So how do we reconcile these random things that happen that have massive implications on your life and God works through them seemingly without any human involvement and yet then our choices are meaningful? Esther makes a really significant choice in the book. Mordecai makes significant choices. How do we reconcile those two, the randomness of life, God's working in the random events, and the significance of our choices? I've entitled this series on Esther, A Tale of Chance 
and choice. Both are present. Things seemingly happen by chance, and yet we see that God works through them and that our choices are still meaningful. Another reason to like Esther and try to apply it to your life is that, much like the Persian culture, we live in a godless culture too, in a secular godless culture. Just like Persia, and this is, I think this is the reason why, in fact, the narrator does not mention God at all and takes out all religious language out of the book, is to show us that they are in a godless, secular culture, just like we are. So how do you still live as a Christian? In a, in a culture that doesn't acknowledge God at all, that doesn't agree with you on the existence of God, on the nature of God. How do you not only survive, but how do you thrive as a Christian? And lastly, another point of relevance for Esther for our lives is that it's about God's providence. God's providence that's fueled by his unchanging commitment to his covenant people. We are God's covenant people. He's committed to us. He loves us. And so he works through various circumstances to preserve us and to bless us. And that is something worth focusing on in your own life, especially in the time of suffering, in the time when you're trying to figure out what is God doing here? Is he even present at all? Does he speak? So you look at a book of Esther to see how God works behind the scenes. Well, I'm going to read chapter 1 of Esther. So if you want to follow along, that would be helpful to you. Esther is a, is a short book, and we will we'll cover different portions one at a time and work through it and hopefully make it very relevant to our lives. Chapter 1 of Esther. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. For all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bitha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples 
and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuch. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the king's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give a royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of the people. Well, this is God's word. Let's see what we can learn from it. As you can tell, the chapter is all about appearances. It's all about appearances. It's all about what you look like, what others perceive you to be. And so as you think about it, with this in mind, let's look at what the world promises in regards to appearances. Number two, how the world fails to deliver on that promise. Number three, how the Lord fails and what the Lord promises. So what the world promises, what the world fails to deliver, what the Lord fails to do, and what the Lord promises. It will become clear as we go along what I mean by these headings. So King gives this incredible feast. Now the reason is very clear why he's doing this. Verse 4, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. This is a six-month feast party. Some of you are thinking, that's my senior year in college. Maybe. Why is he doing this? Why is he giving this lavish party for so long? Well, it's very clear that he's doing that so that everybody who's there is able to see how powerful and how glorious and how beautiful he is. That's the reason. And he has so much wealth that it takes him six months to show it off. Imagine that. You invite somebody to your house and you say, let me give you a tour, and you're done in two minutes, right? Not so with King Ahasuerus. It takes him six months to show you everything he's got, all the things that he just brings out and tells you, all these riches 
all the beautiful things that he has accumulated, all his armies. Now, why is he doing that? All the important people are there. Why is he doing? Why is he trying to impress them? What's his goal? Well, we know from history that he is getting ready to invade Greece. He's going on, on another military campaign, and so he needs to get everybody on board. That's why the generals, the army, that's why they're there. He's trying to get everybody on board because he wants everybody's support, everybody's loyalty, everybody's agreement in this new campaign that he's about to start. So not only that he needs their validation and acceptance, he was a vain person, as we know from history. He's described as, as a handsome warrior and a jealous lover. You were described like that. You're a vain person. Just a heads up. Okay? Some, somebody describes you as a handsome man and a jealous lover. It's vain. That, that's, how, that's how Herodotus describes uh, King, King Xerxes or King Osiris. And so not only that he's vain, not only that he needs that approval and people like him, him, but he also wants everybody on board so he can go against Greece and hopefully conquer another territory for his kingdom. Now, if you... If you're a careful reader of the Bible, you, you must have noticed that the narrator's focus is on appearances. He mentions the vast territory of the empire, talks about 127 provinces. So those are imagined, those are states like we have in America. We have 127 states. Uh, he talks about the length of the feast being six months. He talks about the marble and the gold and the silver and the pearls, everything in his palace. All of that serves to show how powerful and rich the king appeared. This is important. Appeared. He wanted to show off his wealth and his power. And it tells us that the king completely bought into this idea that acceptance and validation are based on one's appearance. That's why he's doing that. He needs to be validated and accepted and followed by these important people in the empire. So he's going to impress them. He's going to convince them that he is worth following. So how does, he, how does he hope to get these generals excited about Greece? Not by talking about military strategy, but by showing off his wealth and saying, look at me. Look how wealthy, how rich, how glorious, how beautiful I am. Follow me. Be loyal to me. Now later in the next chapter, we'll deal with it next week, Esther. She's going to be the new queen. And, and many girls are gathered and and they all go through months of, of beautification treatment. Why? To please the king. They're going to use their beauty to impress the king. In fact, they're going to use that one night they get with the king to please him so much that he would choose them to be their queen. They're doing exactly the same thing that the king is doing for his important officials. You're using appearance. You're showing off something you have something you can look at, something you can, you can accept as important, as valuable, to gain someone else's acceptance and validation. Now, in Persia, if you were a man, what mattered most was your money and success. That's what the king shows, his money and success. If you were a woman, like Esther in Persia, what mattered most was your looks and your sex appeal. Am I glad we don't live in Persia anymore with the backward ethics of the ancient world? I'm so glad that we have evolved and we have moved into the modern times where men are not judged based on how much money they have and the kind of cars they drive and 
how successful they are in their businesses. And where women are not judged based on their appearance. Where the weight of a woman doesn't matter. Where what they wear doesn't matter. Where the whiteness of their teeth doesn't matter. Am I glad that this, this backwards ethics of the Bible doesn't apply to us anymore? You in The Bachelor. Is anybody familiar with that show? Kelly knows what I'm talking about. What is the point of the what is the premise of the show? You have a wealthy, successful, handsome man, a jealous lover perhaps, who's now given his pick of a woman among the two dozen that were chosen and were put through beautification treatment so they could please him. And he can sample them. So then he can choose the one that he might or might not spend his life with. That's not Persia, is it? Isn't that our life? It always, it always amuses me when people say, well, we, we can't read the Bible anymore because our culture is so different. You know, we've, we've changed. Our, our women are emancipated now. They don't, they don't care how other people see them anymore. Our men are not just after success anymore. We, we can judge people based on their character now. Right? And so people look at the book of Esther and say, well, this was, this was ancient. The Bible is not applicable to me anymore. It's, it's something people used to do. It's, it's not our problem anymore. And yet you look at our life, and the bachelor, and what do you see? It's the same, isn't it? Now notice how Esther, the book of Esther, there's no moral judgment. The narrator is not saying whether it's right or wrong. All that he is saying is that that's the way it is. That's the way it is in the sinful world. Whatever culture you live in, whatever time you live in, men are generally judged based on their success and the amount of money they have. Women are generally judged based on their physical beauty and sexual appearance. That's our world. Now, that's always been our world. Whatever culture, whatever time, whatever time you're in, the world makes a promise to us. The world says that to be liked, you must impress others. Try to be as beautiful as you can. Try to be as successful as you can. And under no circumstances, let others see the real you. That's what the world tells us every day. In Persia, and in our culture today. Because no one likes the real you. That's, what, that's, what, that's what's underneath that promise. The world says, nobody likes the real you. Nobody will accept you. Nobody will be your friend. Nobody will hire you unless you pretend to be someone else. Unless you pretend to be more beautiful than you are. Unless you pretend to be more successful, more wealthy than you are. Unless you put up a front, nobody will love you. Nobody will accept you. The world promises that through our appearance, we can find validation and acceptance. That is the promise of the world that is made today as it was in ancient Persia. Have you bought into the world's promise that somehow through your appearance, you're able to gain acceptance and validation? Are you like Esther, going through the world's beautification process to gain acceptance and validation? Maybe it's not your physical beauty that you're after, Maybe it's education. Uh, maybe, maybe it's relationships and connections. Maybe it's, uh, it, it's promotions at work. 
Maybe it is money. Maybe it is cars. I don't know. But are you buying into this idea that if I appear to be a certain way, I will be accepted and loved and validated by others? Are you buying into that? How do you treat others? When you, when you spend time with other people, you go to a party, uh, and there's a lot of people you know, a lot of people you don't know. Who do you gravitate to? Who do you want to spend time with? Is that the person that appears to be happy and well-adjusted and wealthy? Or is that a person that sits in the corner by themselves and doesn't have any friends? Which one do you go to? See, that tells you if you bought into the world's promise that what matters is appearances. That's, that's the main thing. Are you treating others based on how they look, how they appear to be? And are you yourself, are you hiding the real you behind your appearance? Have you constructed this, this front that, that you're all too happy that people notice and see and accept you based on that, but you are fearful, you're afraid that the real you is going to come out and people are going to reject you? Is that how you live? Now for me, as a pastor, I, it's always surprising when um, you know, somebody comes and says, well, I'm... I'm into this new relationship now. I'm dating this, this this guy, and my first question usually is, well, is he a Christian? Is he a godly person? And all too often I hear, I don't know. But you're dating him. Why? Why don't you know? We haven't talked about it. It hasn't come up. But you're dating him. How do you go from I'm going to date you to I don't know if you're a Christian? What attracted you to the person? Appearances, right? Because you don't know the substance of the person. Now, they may be a Christian, they may not be a Christian, but that is not what attracted you to the person. It's not the inner beauty, it's not the character, it's not the convictions. What's attracting you to the person? Their appearance. They're cute, usually, the answer. They're cute. They're successful. They seem like they're, he's a nice guy. But do you see how even we in the church, how much we struggle with just trusting people and, and, and liking people just purely based on appearance. How, how many uh, Christian men, Christian guys, who see a girl that, that looks good to them and, and they pursue that relationship hoping, hoping that perhaps she's a Christian? So the decision is she looks good. And then you're hoping that, because you know you can't date non-Christians, you're hoping that hopefully she is a Christian. But that's how the world makes decisions, based on appearance. And that's all too often how we as Christians make decisions as well. So we have embraced that promise of the world that through appearances we can get acceptance and validation. But if you are a Christian, especially if you're a Christian, you know that the world fails to deliver on that promise. The world makes the promise, but then the world fails to deliver. The world is not able to keep this promise of getting acceptance and validation based on your appearance. Now look at the king. The irony in the story, by the way, is, is, is completely deliberate. Look, he's described as the ruler of 127 provinces. He's literally, literally, this is the right word to use here, literally the most powerful and wealthy man in the world a man commanding a massive military force, and yet he is unable to convince his trophy wife to come out to the living room. Do you see the irony here? He's got this lavish feast for six months, 
He's parading his, his wealth and his armies. And then he says, honey, could you please come here and meet my friends? And she says, no. And his world crumbles. Everything is shattered because he's not able, he's just not able to exert any influence over his wife. For all his wealth and his power, in one moment, the king is exposed as a self-absorbed, insecure, violent drunk. That one word, Vashti says no. She's like a hockey goalie. She just says no. And, I'm sorry, nobody got that joke. It's okay. She just says no, and he's exposed as a fraud. All the power that he claims to have, he doesn't. He can't bend the will of his wife. And here he goes, he wants to conquer Greece. Do you see how in one instance, everything falls apart? Now, coincidentally, he is unable to conquer Greece. He comes back a couple of years later with his wealth depleted and his armies destroyed. He was unable to, to destroy Greece and to take over Greece. So the world says, get acceptance and validation by appearing, appearing to be successful and beautiful. But the world doesn't tell you how fragile appearances are. Now, I, I don't know if you know this show, it's a BBC, it's a British show, Keeping Up Appearances. I don't know if anybody's seen that. It's a, it's, it's a funny little sitcom. Um, and it's the, the, main, the main character is, is Mrs. Bucket, or as she says, Bouquet, um, because she, <laughs> she's trying to appear to be upper class. And so the whole, the whole premise of the show is that she's trying to appear more educated, more aristocratic, more influential than she really is. And inevitably, in every, in every episode, she's shown to be a fraud. She's shown to be that she doesn't belong in that world. Um, have we not learned the lesson about the, 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 how fragile appearances are from the many politicians who are exposed as frauds? Have we not learned that? There's so many stories where, you know, the person goes on the campaign and claims how, how he's, he's this honest and man, person of integrity, and a family man, and he raises his children. All of that, and then one new story shatters it all. Turns out he's not it at all. He had an affair, and, and it, it was hidden. And now all these secret things are coming out, and you realize all of this other front that he put up, it, it's not true. He's not the person that we thought he was and we accepted him as. Now how about all the religious leaders who are exposed as living the same sinful lifestyle that they preach against from the pulpit? Shouldn't that tell us that appearances are fragile? That though you can put up a front on Sunday, and I can talk about anything on Sunday, but if you know my life, you're going to know whether I am sincere or not. Appearances are fragile. How about the glamorous supermodels that we so often hear about their insecurities and their addiction problems and suicide attempts? Now, how can it be? Somebody that appears to be so beautiful and appears to be so attractive and acceptable and, 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 and lovable are so unhappy inside, and are so, so fragile. What about the notorious inability of celebrities to stay married? If the world was right, if, if the world's promise is true that through your appearances, success and beauty, you're able to get acceptance and validation. Wouldn't those marriages stay intact? They should, right? But the world lies. And that promise isn't true. 
it doesn't come true. The world fails to deliver because you cannot get real acceptance or validation by impressing others with your beauty or success. There will come a moment in everyone's life when it all crumbles. Everything you have constructed in your life to present yourself as better than you really are will crumble and you will be exposed as a fraud. When you fail, when you cannot pretend to be successful anymore, you will be exposed and people will see you for who you really are. And we're all scared of that, aren't we? All the things that you're trying to accomplish in life and you say, I am my success or I am my beauty or I am my money, you place your identity right in there and then you fail and you don't have money anymore or your beauty is gone or you can't accomplish what you've set out to accomplish in, in, at your job. What happens then? Your life is shattered. And Lamont talks about this fear of being exposed. He says, and my fear of failure has been lifelong and deep. If you are what you do, and we may add, if you are what you look like, and I think my parents may have accidentally given me this idea, and you do poorly, what then? It's over. You're wiped out. All those prophecies you heard in the dark have come true. And people can see the real you. See what a schmendrick you are. What a fraud. It's always good to throw in some Yiddish for a writer, I think. What she's saying is that if, if you placed all this weight on your appearances, when you, when, you, when you say, if I accomplish these things, I will be who I really am, and then you fail to accomplish it, she says, then you're exposed. You're wiped out. You're over. There's nothing, there's nothing left of you because now everybody knows you're a loser. Everybody knows you're a fraud. You've been pretending to be somebody, but now everybody knows you're nobody. Just as all those prophecies made in the dark have now come true. All those prophecies about you being a loser have now come true. Now, I think that's a fear that many of us live with, and probably all of us. That moment of exposure when you're finally revealed for who you really are, and people are repulsed. They don't, they don't accept you anymore. They reject you. They don't want to be with you anymore. Now, let's say that moment hasn't come to you yet. And some of you are young, and it's still ahead of you. So look forward to that. But let's say the moment isn't here yet, and you're still seemingly able to produce acceptance and validation for yourself by appearing to be better than you know you really are. Now think about it. Are those things real that you're accomplishing? Are you actually achieving acceptance and validation through pretending to be someone else? I don't think so. You're pretending to be somebody and people pretend to accept you. But it's not real. It's not authentic. Loyalty built on pretenses is pretend loyalty. It's not, it's not real. Now the king from the book of Esther knows that because what happens later? He, he ends his reign being assassinated by one of his guards, one of his closest guards in his palace is murdered. Because the loyalty that the guards had towards him wasn't real. They just needed an opportunity to take over. And we know that. 
we, we know people in our lives that think we are somebody and when they find out that we have nothing to offer to them, they leave, they betray us, they, they, they don't stick around. Because the relationship wasn't based on truth. It was based on what we have both pretended to be. Love built on external beauty is only external and it simply cannot last. Do you think the king loved Vashti? King Vashti, do you think the king really loved her? No, he didn't love her. He was happy to have a beautiful woman around. But as soon as she opposed him in any way, he was done with her. What was he really in love with? Vashti? No, her appearance. And when it no longer served him, when it no longer pleased him, she was gone. He kicked her out and he was looking for somebody better. Did you catch that word in the text? Let's look for somebody who's better than Vashti. Better in what way? More compliant, more obedient. Somebody who's not going to oppose me. Somebody who's just going to be there looking good for me. That's what he was after. He wasn't after a relationship with Vashti or Esther. It wasn't about human relationships, knowing the person and Vashti's courage and convictions. That's not what he was interested in. He was interested in the way she looked for his pleasure, for his glory in front of his friends. History will always remember the king, this king, Ahasuerus, as a powerful emperor who was unable to conquer Greece. Because what the world promises, it cannot deliver. And we are fools for believing that we can, in fact, get validation and acceptance through our appearances. If you are a Christian, especially if you are a Christian, do not trust the world's promise. It always fails. Now, how can we break free from this world's obsession with appearances. We live here in this culture. Some of you watch The Bachelor. Perhaps that is a, a reason for church discipline. I don't know. But, but perhaps you watch that show. Perhaps you know how the culture works. Perhaps you buy into it. How can you break free? I think many of us don't want to live like that. We don't want to judge people based on their appearances. We don't want to try to pretend to be somebody we're not. But how do you break free? free from that? It's very hard. I think many of us struggle with that. How can we live in this world and yet reject its promises? Now, Esther will learn her lesson later. As we go into the story, you'll see Esther's struggles and see how she deals with that. We don't know much about Vashti, so it's hard to use her as a role model. But we must look to someone else to help us figure it out. Now, about five centuries later, Jesus utterly failed to impress anyone with his appearance. And lacking beauty and power, he was rejected and destroyed. But in his failure, Jesus made a promise that trumps the world's promise and erases the world's failure. Let's look at Jesus. Let's see how Jesus helps us to break free from this world's promise and insistence on appearances and its significance. Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3 describes Jesus in this way. He had no form or majesty that we should look at, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isn't it interesting, as you read Scripture, that the eternal, all-powerful, perfect God the most beautiful being in existence, comes into the world and utterly fails to impress anyone. Isn't that weird? 
people who were close to Jesus, the disciples that followed him around for a couple of years, they still didn't know who he was until after the ascension. They still had their doubts. They still couldn't understand how, how this man could be who he claims to be. And so God comes into the world. And instead of flaunting his wealth, instead of showing off his beauty and his power, like the king in, in the book of Esther, what does he do? He fails, utterly fails to impress anybody. He did not appear beautiful or powerful. In fact, at no point in Jesus' life or ministry, he was really impressive, I don't think. It was not until his ascension that everything got figured out. So, Isaiah talks about this, this image of, of this beautiful, all-powerful, eternal God. But the way he describes him is, he's saying that men hid their faces from him. They didn't want to look at him. It was painful to look at him. It's probably referring to the cross, where Jesus' face is swollen and, and, and bloody, where his beard and, and his hair is plucked out, where he's, he's nailed naked to the cross. That's God. That's the most powerful, eternal, beautiful being in existence who comes like that into the world. In fact, Paul says that Jesus deliberately emptied himself of beauty and power. He didn't want to bring any of that into the world. Look at Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7 and 8. Though he was in the form of God, meaning he was God and he is God, did not, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be insisted on, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This King Jesus is not parading his wealth, but he hides it. This King Jesus does not show off his glory, but he conceals it. No one follows this king to war. He fights alone and he dies abandoned. Jesus refuses to gain acceptance and validation through appearances. This is very deliberate in the way that God came into this world. So how does King Jesus' failure help us? The world tells us appearances matter. Jesus says, I'm not going to appear beautiful and powerful at all and everybody's going to reject me. How does that help us? Well, this is what God tells us in Jesus. And this is in contrast to what the world says. God in Jesus says, I refuse to deal with people based on their appearance. God said, I'm not impressed with your pretend righteousness. God says, I will deal with who you really are, not who you pretend to be. God says, I will not pretend along with you that you are successful or beautiful or powerful. He says, I know better. In Jesus, God tells us that we are sinners and that rejection is exactly what we deserve. The real us, and God knows that, are repulsive. And we cannot be hidden for very long. That's why appearances don't work. So Jesus, in response to all of that, becomes sin for us. Jesus takes upon himself the reality of sin. No pretenses, no keeping up appearances. On the cross, 
to the whole world, Jesus appears as a schmendrick, as a loser, as a fraud, with a sign over his head showing that he claimed to be a king, but he is executed for treason. That failure that we are afraid of, that exposure of us for who we really are, that rejection that we are trying to avoid, all of that is put on him on the cross. And he saves us from destruction by his own destruction. He saves us from rejection by his own rejection. He saves us from failure by his own failure. You see, king of Persia accepted Vashti and later Esther because they were beautiful. He accepted them as long as they pleased him. But King Jesus accepts us first and then he makes us beautiful. He loves us before we can ever please him. This, this is amazing. It is completely opposite from what the world tells us and from what we know to not be true in our own experiences. Look at Ephesians 5, the passage that, that Carl read this morning for Call to Worship. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. He died for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see the difference here? Jesus loves the church first, and then he presents her beautiful to himself. Jesus is not putting the church through beauty treatments like Esther was put through. Jesus is not saying, please me, the church, and then I will love you. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus loves us by grace. Jesus says, I will die for you first, and then I will love you. I will die for your ugliness first, and then I will make you beautiful. That's the kind of acceptance that we have in Jesus. It is completely different from the world. It is not based on appearances or accomplishments or our beauty. It's based on his commitment to us, based on his giving up his life for us, becoming a failure, a fraud, a loser for us, so he can love and accept us forever. Now, if this promise of acceptance in Jesus by grace grips you, if it takes hold of your heart, you can break free from the world's promises. And you can live authentically, even in our secular and godless culture obsessed with appearances. To the degree that you understand the gospel, the gospel being that Jesus loves you by grace, and he's not waiting for you to become beautiful to love you, but he loves you first, and then he makes you beautiful for himself. If you get that, and that's the message of the cross, if you get that, the center of Christianity, and to the degree that you get that, you'll be able to live authentically. You'll be able to live free from the weight of appearances and promises of the world. Now, this is not easy to do, because we're in the world, and the world talks to us all the time. But let Jesus talk to you. Even now, we're going to come to the table in just a minute. Let Jesus talk to you about the gospel. Let Jesus talk to you as a loving husband talks to his wife, as a bridegroom talks to his bride, as the king talks to his queen. 
listen to him and hear him say that he loves you even though you're not beautiful and that he will make you beautiful for himself. Brothers and sisters, if we get this, our lives change. They do. They do. And that will change also how you treat others. Because if you're able to see yourself in light of the gospel and feel acceptance and validation from God himself through Christ who died and rose for you, by grace, if you're able to do that, then you can see other people and accept people by grace and say, I know you're not beautiful. I know you haven't accomplished anything, but I love you. Because by grace I can do that. Because God loves me in the same way. And you can treat people differently. You can see beauty in people because you will see God's beauty in people. Not Especially among Christians, you will see how Christ grows in someone. And you will love Christ in them. And that love is stronger than any love that's based on accomplishment or beauty. We're going to take communion now. And as you come to the table, what do you see? Do you see a magnificent display of God's glory at the table? No, you don't. What do you see? You see crumbs and little cups of juice. That's what you see. Is, is it a glorious, powerful, overpowering thing? No, because God doesn't come like that. But we see bread that's broken because Christ died for you. We see the juice and the wine that are spilled for you. And we see that Jesus accepts us based on his own sacrifice for us. So with those thoughts, let's pray and let's come to the table and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Father, we praise you for your beauty and for your power and for your glory. And we acknowledge you as, as the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-beautiful person in existence. And yet we also remember that when Jesus came, he emptied himself of all of that and refused to operate based on appearances, but became who we really are. Sin. Appeared to be a fraud to everybody and died for our sins. So through his death, we can now avoid this huge disappointment. And through his destruction, we can survive. And we can be who we are in you and avoid the guilt and condemnation of the world. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will come and speak to us on behalf of Jesus. I pray that, that he would talk to us and tell us of your love for us in Jesus. And that the truth of the gospel will anchor us so we are no longer pretending and trying to appear stronger, more righteous, or more knowing or more holy in your eyes or in the eyes of others. That we simply embrace that we are perfect and beautiful in Jesus. Let the truth into our hearts and change us. So not only that we see ourselves differently and don't buy into the promise of the world anymore, but we also see others differently and are able to treat them by grace.